four years ago now. I think it's been um, it's been traveling back and forth from my office to my house and my office and my house. It's now very beat up. Um, and uh, but I always thought I would want to write a platform about the cover article of that magazine. It's an article called "What Makes Us Happy." It's by Joshua Wolf Shank from 2009, and um, and it looks at a field really a field that's taken off in the last few years, um, kind of often called positive psychology. The idea of looking at mental health from the position of wanting to increase mental health and happiness, um, kind of looking at it from that, from that positive viewpoint, not as mental health as a problem that needs to be fixed, but as something that we can all increase as we all try to live sort of a, a happy life. Now, I want to put a note of caution in here, and that, and that note actually is, dovetails, I think, really beautifully with a platform that Mary gave at the beginning of this month about mental health, which looked at depression, anxiety, many forms of, um, of challenges with mental health, with mental illness, right on that spectrum where all of us live over the course of our lives, you know as we move back and forth on that spectrum from mental health to feeling um, less full of mental health. And so I want to I note the kind of challenge that I sometimes have with positive psychology, particularly as it's practiced in, um, in like pithy sayings on pillows and above your bed, you know, which, which tends to be along the lines of, you know, just be happy and look at this picture of daisies or be strong, don't let yourself be sad ever. Um, if you're strong, it'll be fine. And um, and so I want to note that that word of caution, you know, that when we look at positive psychology and we look at sort of studies about how to be happy, that I don't mean to suggest that it's as easy as all that. And I think we'll get to that a little bit actually as we as we look at this. But I wanted to start with that note of caution. This article from the Atlantic from 2009. Um, was about a longitudinal study of Harvard men that started in 1938. I think there was only men in Harvard in 1938, actually. It was called the Grant Study, named after the original funder of the study back in the 30s. And it was started, the, the studier was a physician named Arlie Bach. And here's what he said in 1938. <clears throat> that this study was an attempt to analyze the forces that have produced normal young men. That, that combination of sentiments and physiological factors, which in Toto is commonly interpreted as successful living. I try to kind of sound like a 1938 Harvard um, physician there. So already I'm a, little, I'm a little wary as I read about this longitudinal um, study. What's normal um, for Harvard men in 1938 may actually have relatively little to do with what I consider normal or successful these days. But um, And then I kept reading about the study and found that the methods in the early years included a huge variety of anatomical measurements based on what Shank, the author of this article in The Atlantic, what Shank calls the premise that stock character types could be seen from body proportions. Alarm bell, alarm bell, totally weird medical study. <laughs> For a little while after that time, and I think they were still doing the anatomical measurements, um, the original funder dropped out. He stayed for about 10 years, this one individual who, uh, who started funding it. And so, you know, they looked for funding in other places. And for a while, this study was funded by Philip Morris, the tobacco company... <laughs> 
And it included the question at that time, it was questionnaires and studies by doctors and all these weird measurements. It included the question, uh, if you've never smoked, why didn't you? (laughs) So um, a little bit of suspect data in the early years, perhaps. But over time, this study shifted from sort of the scientific to the surreal to the much more subtle. And this study continues even today. So it started in 1938. In the field of longitudinal studies, that is really longitudinal. The amount of data, self-reporting, exams, questionnaires, etc., that was gathered over this period of time is a little unusual in longitudinal studies. Here's what Shank, uh, the author of the article, said about, about the study over time. It turned out that the lives were too big, too weird, too full of subtleties and contradictions to fit any easy conception of successful living. Over time, the studies showed that the things that we think might be predictors of health begin to break down. Cholesterol, for example, is uh, an important predictor of health in midlife, but not really so much in later life, it seems, according to this particular study. And then some, which I think will resonate here, continue to be important. For instance, relationships, as Laura so beautifully spoke about during our candle lighting. The study eventually was facilitated and is still overseen in some ways by um, a man named George Valiant. And, uh, and he says about the study that what he took away from it is that the only, and I quote, the only thing that really matters in life are your relationships to other people. The study actually got kind of into popular literature and presumably into this article in The Atlantic again because of the advent of the positive psychology movement, which, as I said, is relatively recent and started the kind of founder of positive psychology is Martin Seligman, who, who is called by Shank the scientific, um, called the positive psychology movement the idea of the scientific study of the good life. The Grant study, this this longitudinal look, provides kind of a subtler response um, to what it means to have a good life than some of the kind of more, you know, pop psychology versions of the positive psychology movement. And the Grant study speaks as well to the elusiveness of happiness, whatever that means. Pop psychology suggests that we should choose happiness, I think. And George Valiant, the author, the facilitator of this study, would say that it's hard to do so, um, even when we know we want to make that choice. Because over and over, they found that, and I quote from the article, that positive emotions make us more vulnerable than negative ones. While negative emotions tend to be insulating, positive emotions expose us to the common elements of rejection and heartbreak. Isn't that interesting? So they found over and over that study participants were reluctant to do some of those things that might help us to choose happiness because they expose us to the common elements of rejection and heartbreak. In some ways, the takeaway from this study seems to be in the articulation of the study process itself, which included both those sort of weird anatomy measurements that I uh, mentioned early. I think they did finally decide that body proportions actually didn't really have to do with your stock character type, but also includes a huge amount of self-description, self-reflective writing from the members of this study who were tracked down over all of these years. 
And all of these people whose lives looked one way, you know, in terms of success and happiness, even health, and who described their own interactions with their lives very differently than you might expect in both directions. People who looked like the paragon of success and described a life that was constantly searching, constantly not quite enough for them. And people whose lives looked as though they had hardly met with success at all. How could they understand themselves to be happy? And yet, they did. So one of the things that had me wondering is what the role of self-perception is in our experience of happiness, whether that idea of sort of how we perceive ourselves may be more important than we realize. And what, for that matter, about the role of choice, as positive psychology would have us look at, you know, can we choose to be happy? Can we make some of those choices? It's not so simple as though there's a formula for happiness out there. There was an article on utney.com, which is the online companion to the Utney Reader, um, and this is what the article says. In a study published earlier in the year in the journal Psychological Science, Sonia so she has a long name, and it's beautiful. And Kristen Leus found that not all research-approved happy... You'd think, my husband's last name is Verchinsky. You think I could manage Lubomirsky, but I can't. Found that not all research-approved happiness practices work for everyone all the time. It's a surprise, isn't it? <clears throat> the article goes on, let's say you publish a study that shows being grateful makes you happy, which it does, Lou Bormersky recently told us. But actually, she goes on, it's much harder than that. It's actually very hard to be grateful and to be grateful on a regular basis and at the right time and for the right things. <laughs> Starts to sound a little exhausting to try to be happy. And yet we know that there are practices of gratitude, of awareness, of mindfulness that can over time, and even sometimes in the short term, but especially over a lifetime can lead to an ability to live in what might be called not exactly happiness, but, but maybe joy. Joy, some people say, is in some ways more a practice of faith than the temporal state of happiness that we get when a particular event goes our way. So then I found another Atlantic article, this time from 2013, Makes me think the platform could be called Crossing the Atlantic in four years. This article is called There's More to Life Than Being Happy, and it's by Emily Esfahani Smith, and focuses not on happiness and health the way that Grant Study article did, but on meaning and choice and the relationship between them. The article really looks at the work of Viktor Frankl, who is most famous for his book Man's Search for Meaning, Frankel was a Holocaust survivor and, um, and psychologist and wrote in Man's Search for Meaning, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Esfahani Smith tries in this article in The Atlantic to get a little bit into that idea of the search for meaning and what Frankel meant by all of that. She talks about the book saying, the book's emphasis on meaning, the value of suffering and responsibility to something greater than self, 
seems to be at odds with our culture, which is more interested in the pursuit of individual happiness than in the search for meaning. She quotes Frankel, to the European, Frankel wrote, it is a characteristic of the American culture that again and again, one is commanded and ordered to be happy. But happiness cannot be pursued, it must ensue. One must have a reason to be happy. There was a, another study that I look at. There's tons of studies out there, you know, on happiness, which I always think. I had a doctor once tell me he was um, working with something for chronic pain, and, and, um, and he said, you know, I could prescribe this for you, but I could prescribe a, a million other things too. And, um, and the reason I could prescribe so many things is that none of them actually really work all that well. If one of them worked, then that's the one everyone would prescribe. So I wonder about all these studies about how to be happy. There was a study recently of Americans over um, the course of a month self-reporting, and, um, and what they found was that leading a happy life was associated with being a taker, having one's own needs met, while leading a meaningful life corresponded with being a giver. That idea that happiness was about being our, having our own needs filled, our drives met. That particular study said people whose lives have high levels of meaning often actively seek meaning out even when they know it will come at the expense of happiness because they have invested themselves in something bigger than themselves. They also worry more and have higher levels of stress and anxiety in their lives than happy people. So suddenly meaning isn't looking too good either. We found out that, you know, gratitude is too time-consuming and we aren't going to do it right, and now meaning will actually make us worry. Meaning, though, like joy, is a lifelong quest, different than that idea of happiness that can go up and down in a moment for us over the course of a day or a week or a year. Studies show that the experience of meaning in life actually gets deeper through experiences of suffering, as Viktor Frankl surely discovered during his own horrific experiences in a concentration camp where he lost his entire family. And I wonder if that's the piece that makes meaning worth it, worth the extra worry and anxiety that comes with us. Because otherwise, I imagine we would just rather sit around making sure that we're happy. And I wonder if that's part of what happened in that grant study, that longitudinal study of Harvard men where where people described themselves so differently than it would seem that they would appear to the outside world. I wonder if part of what was going on was that they were describing a life with meaning, even if it wasn't always a happy one. There's one more study I want to tell you about, a fascinating one I read about in the New York Times a few months ago in a little post by Gretchen Reynolds. It was a study that took uh, paired self-descriptions about happiness, how people described their own happiness and what led to that happiness, and then blood work uh, of those people and looking at a whole variety of markers in their blood work. Here's what Gretchen Reynolds writes. Specifically, those volunteers whose happiness, according to their questionnaires, was primarily hedonic, to use the scientific term, or based on consuming things. So think again about that idea of sort of having your needs met, you know, having your drives met 
those people had surprisingly unhealthy profiles with relatively high levels of biological markers known to promote increased inflammation throughout the body. The volunteers whose happiness was more eudaimonic or based on a sense of higher purpose and service to others, Gretchen Reynolds notes that's a small minority of the overall group, but those people had profiles that displayed augmented levels of antibody-producing gene expression. And our biology discussion group is going to have to tell me what that means later. (laughs) Augmented levels of antibody-producing gene expression and lower levels of the pro-inflammatory expression. You know, sometimes liberal religion gets a wrap of not being able to promise anything. We have different beliefs and welcome different beliefs about this life and what happens after you die, but I definitely can't promise that you get to go to heaven or that you won't go to hell. Actually, I do promise that you won't go to hell. (laughs) I promise. But the idea, I think, is that, you know, we can't promise that much. We can't promise, you know, this incredible eternal reward. And I'm now wondering if we ought to be focusing our marketing on the promise of health in this life, of all of those amazing antibody-producing gene expressions. (laughs) If more of your happiness is eudaimonic, if more of your happiness is about giving and connection to other people. I want to sort of abruptly change course here because at the same time that I've been doing this happiness research, I've also been aware of deep anger and sadness in the world. In world events in the Ukraine in the last couple of days and in Venezuela and closer to home as we've heard the results from the trial of Jordan Davis's killer. Jordan Davis is the young black man who was shot and killed by a white man, Michael Dunn, after an argument about loud music coming from Davis's car. The white man, uh, Michael Dunn, was found guilty on several charges, uh, but the murder charge in particular resulted in a mistrial, in large part because of stand-your-ground laws in Florida. You may have heard about that case in recent days. I don't want to go into the details of the case right now, although I think it calls to us in the same way that Trayvon Martin's death and the results of George Zimmerman's trial called to us, in the same way that the erosion of voting rights, an erosion that is uh, clearly targeted, um, uh, almost um, openly targeted at people of color, calls to us, in the same way that the school-to-prison pipeline calls to us and the deeply racially-based prison system calls to us. And so what I want to say, I think, what came to me as I, as I was writing about all of this happiness research and reading these studies, what I want to say is something about the totality of all of these injustices. There's so many injustices throughout the world. And how it makes me wonder whether all of this talk about happiness and antibody-producing gene expression and even meaning-making has any meaning at all. Or if it is just the worry of a bunch of privileged Atlantic reading, a Harvard men studying navel gazers. I wish I knew the answer to that question. You probably wish I knew the answer to that question. 
I know in my own life, I struggle between the desire to wade out into the muck of privilege and oppression and injustice and to try to figure out how to change the whole damn system, this culture that is tearing apart our people. I struggle between that desire and the desire to put on my pajamas and watch an episode of New Girl. We've thought about happiness versus joy, how those two are different, and happiness versus meaningfulness, and how they might be different. I wonder about the idea of happiness versus an ethical life. I wonder if those are different. There's a quote from Herbert Spencer, who was a... um, Uh, late 19th century moral philosopher that I found that speaks, I think, to this piece. He said, No one can be perfectly free till all are free. No one can be perfectly moral till all are moral. No one can be perfectly happy till all are happy. It made me think of the title of this platform, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of... That's, of course, from the Declaration of Independence. And now a lot, a lot, actually, can be said about the many people who were left out of the dream of the Declaration of Independence. That's like six more platforms. But a generous understanding of the intent behind the document is that it called for freedom that it spoke against injustice, that it was a rallying cry not for navel-gazing, but for action to change the world. And that somehow part of that changing in the writer's mind, for my own life, I want to listen for the many voices, not my own, that tell me what meaning looks like. A few years ago, I gave a platform that I titled, Don't Worry, Be Happy. It was a really nice little pithy title. I liked it. Today, I think I want to say, don't worry, just change the world and the systems of oppression and make meaning and joy in your own life and the lives of others. (laughs) It's a little less pithy. I think it might be more real.